Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Greenlight Guru is committed to improving the quality of life, and now we're ready to improve the quality of education and training in the medical device industry. Greenlight Guru Academy is a comprehensive training resource for anyone looking to learn industry best practices with actionable training from industry experts. You'll get on-demand courses that allow you to move at your own pace on topics related to quality and regulatory, product development, design controls, risk management, doc control. Honestly, it's too many to fit into a short ad. So if you're ready to level up your medical device education, visit greenlight.guru forward slash academy today. Welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. My name is Etienne Nichols, and I'm the host of today's episode. In today's episode, we spoke with Scott Carson on the future of buying and selling used medical devices. Scott has more than 30 years of healthcare marketing, business development, sales, and management experience. He was part of the team that built the eBay healthcare marketplace structure, and he's nationally recognized as a leader and speaker in driving sales through internet transactional platforms. He founded U.S. Medical, the first internet distributor of new and pre-owned capital medical equipment to the healthcare industry. This started in his basement. U.S. Medical emerged five years later as a member of the Inc. 500. Scott was named a finalist twice in the Ernst & Young's Entrepreneur of the Year Award competition and has been twice named among the Inc. 500's fastest-growing companies. Scott has a lot of insight into some of the changes and the challenges that this industry is facing, and he's already started working towards implementing solutions to these challenges. We covered a lot of ground, but one of the interesting things I heard in this conversation was that there's already a used market for medical devices. So what will the future of reprocessing those used or providing, distributing those used devices look like? If you have something to add on this topic after the episode, we'd love to hear it. Head over to the community and join the conversation at community.greenlight.guru. Now on to the show. Please enjoy this episode with Scott Carson on the future of buying and selling medical devices. Hey, Scott, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, been looking forward for this uh, to this for uh, for several days, and um, anxious to dive in and and uh, and. and you know, meet and discuss uh, some of the things we've uh, kicked around already. Yeah, I love. So we were talking a little bit before the uh, you know before. We hit record, just some of the things that we want to talk about. You mentioned voice of aesthetics, the voice of reason in aesthetics. And uh, maybe before we even go into the details about that, I'd kind of like to to hear some of your story. We've talked a little bit about how you helped build the healthcare marketplace for eBay. So obviously you have a lot of experience in these online communities. I wonder if you could give some background in these online communities and maybe some of your background as in your experience building through those things. Sure. This is really going to age me, but uh, you know, my digital experience actually started in uh, what was called fax back and or fax backing. And what that uh, was, was kind of the early kind of digitization of content to purchasers, whether it be clinicians or, or uh, administrators. And this is where they could call a number that was given to them in some form of print um, uh, media or of uh, some type could be a flyer, uh, a direct mail piece, a trade show, and they could call this number and they could choose, um, you know, a number one to 100, for example, 
um, based on the menu, and then information would be delivered by facsimile to the uh, uh, to the recipient about a product or a service, and so they could get some customized detail. And that was basically in the in the late kind of '90s and uh, early 2000s. And um, there was a lot of FTC regulations that were happening about broadcast faxing and that kind of information. Um, but at the same time, this this thing of the internet kind of was happening. And there was like this giant gold rush. We can all look back now and, and look at that and, and see what transpired. But obviously, healthcare being this mammoth global industry, literally hundreds of millions of dollars um, at the time was invested in trying to create efficiency in every aspect of healthcare um, at the time. Um, and this is in kind of the late 90s, early 2000s. And uh, in the devices and pharma and med surge, there were literally hundreds and hundreds of companies um, and roughly seven to 10 front runners um, kind of raising hundreds of millions of dollars, um, building infrastructure and trying to create adoption and traction on the internet for healthcare. And some of you that have been around a while may remember uh, the only company that really made it public was Neoforma and uh, and trying to deliver this experience. And every one of them, of those seven to 10, uh, from Medibuy to uh, uh, US Medical that uh, I was a part of, and uh, so many others actually um, uh, didn't make it out um, because it, healthcare really at the time wasn't ready to make that change. What people misunderstood at the time is that um, healthcare moves very, very slowly. Adoption is very um, uh, <laughs> antiquated and, uh, um, uh, in the way they go about it, and uh, it just doesn't move quick. And I think that was really the biggest miss. And um, and it's it's now at a place where I think we're going to see rapid evolution of, um, uh, of, of adoption to healthcare platforms of the purchasing, um, education, demonstrating, delivering, um, all the way through to the patient use and experience is going to happen incredibly rapidly is probably within the next five to seven years, the landscape and how products and services are delivered will look nothing like it does today. So, you mentioned that obviously the medical device and a lot of the different healthcare things, they move slowly. And I think that's going to be a familiar concept to anybody listening to this, you know, the global medical device podcast. I'm sure they're familiar with that. That being said, I completely see where you come from with the internet and a lot of this technology moved fast. You know, we had a, almost an exponential growth curve. Well, probably an exponential growth curve as that technology started to be adopted. But like you said, the medical devices were a little bit slow. They weren't keeping up. But Matt, now they've uh, maybe reached a point. Why would that be the case? Why Why in the next five to seven years um, do you see that adoption happening? Probably the singest, single biggest accelerant was actually the pandemic. And I was thinking more 10 to 15 years uh, prior to the pandemic. But early in the pandemic, um, experience uh, within a matter of weeks to months, I was speaking and talking uh, throughout the industry about this is going to change everything and speed it up. And we're starting now to see some of that data um, 
uh, become uh, really apparent. And I'll give some examples within the industry and outside of the industry um, of, uh, of healthcare. Within the industry, um, we saw Pfizer at the beginning of this year reduce 1% of its worldwide sales force moving to digital tech stacks. We saw Amgen in February removing 500 sales reps with a movement to more digital content and information. Um, We've seen outside of the industry, uh, Ford that was selling 8% of its cars online now moved to over 30% in the last few months online. Um, There is rapid changing occurring in how we make purchases and in our consumer and in our uh, B2B lives in and outside of healthcare because the pandemic showed us that we don't need to go to the car dealership to buy a car. We don't need a sales rep to be in the office or be in the clinic or in the hospital. Um, In some cases, if you think about it, hospitals um, restricted completely sales reps during the pandemic from coming in the hospitals. And I think they realized somewhat intuitively and then factually kind of consciously later on that, wait a sec, we still operated without sales reps. And so there's something that, that uh, is, is a, has occurred that was a real shift. And then I'll kind of just explain something. If you think about this kind of kind of positioning of healthcare devices, pharma and supplies, MedSurge, is if you think about every aspect of our life, we purchase things. Nobody really sells us anything. I purchase a seat on an airline and I have choices. I go to Airbnb and I look at reviews and photographs and location and pricing, um, good, better, best, um, lowest cost, uh, best location. I make a decision to purchase. Um, I, you know, through social influence, I choose the clothes that I wear or the glasses that I have on or the shoes that I have on. Uh, what restaurants I'm going to do, I use Open Table or Yelp or some other um, platform to guide me on the cost and the experience that I'm looking to, to have. But if you think about it in healthcare, everything is pushed still. Everything is sold. Um, yeah, everybody's yeah. got the best product and the best technology and the best solution. And almost every website of a manufacturer or service provider is very marketing oriented and very lack of data positioned. And there surely isn't any comparison positioning between their competitors. Why would they do that? And then if you look at that, roughly any manufacturer will tell you that sales and marketing roughly is 40 to 50% of the sales cost of a product And if you could find a way to eliminate that and provide a lower cost to the customer and a uh, a longer warranty and greater profitability to the manufacturer to support, um, you know, longer warranties or greater experience or maximize uptime, you've got a massive amount of margin that is sitting there that needs to be compressed. And whether... um, People think I'm right or think I'm wrong. Where you find 40 to 50% margins in massive industries that don't necessarily need to be there um, 
through people, they're going to get wiped out quickly. Yeah. And yeah. we're starting to see some of this. I'm not going to speak specifically to the to the industry, but I'll note it's in vision and it's in the UK and um, a large retail operator of vision technology um, was buying through distribution, which has been the way that they've purchased for decades. And they just kind of woke up one day, this retail provider of um, this uh, kind of implantable device and said, you know, why don't we just go make a deal with a manufacturer directly? And they reduced their costs by 30% by eliminating the distribution stack that existed. So I think <clears throat> what, what's occurred with the pandemic just created an optic of view that was going to be there anyway. It just made it happen faster. And then the last thing is what people don't recognize is I'm, you know, in my later fifties and I adopted technology. I was not a technology native. And so I still have one foot firmly planted in my purchasing um, decisions based on the way things have always been done. Um, now I've adopted the way um, I choose to buy things through technology. However, the 35-year-old administrator that's now in a purchasing decision, um, authoritative position, um, or a physician or clinician that's now starting to make purchasing decisions, they are digitally native and they are, um, uh, they expect that they're going to have good, better, best, lowest price, peer-to-peer -peer reviews, uptime, serviceability, ongoing service costs, parts cost. Um, they don't want to interface with a rep that has the best product. They want to look at the data as they do in every other aspect of their purchasing lives. And they don't understand that there was a way that it was done before technical stacks. And they're going to force this, regardless of what I do, it's going to happen anyway. Yeah, you make a really good point. It's interesting that you bring up the adoption versus native. So I might have been one born out of due season. I'm not exactly sure. My mom was a computer technician. So I can remember every one of us kids had a computer since the time we could walk. And that just seems foreign to me. Otherwise, uh, you brought up the cars. I've been complaining to my wife for years. Why can't I just go online and tell them exactly what I want? And they deliver it to my door. That's the way it ought to be. But you're right. We just assume, well, medical devices are different, but maybe not. So if I were to turn this into a question, though, what is the impact to regulators? You know, we might think, okay, well, they're going to change how they buy things. Okay, well, you know, that's that's going to that's going to impact marketers. It's going to impact salespeople for sure. There's, there's going to be up to a difference there. But what about regulators? Is there an impact to those people in how some of these devices are regulated? Do you see any of that of things like that? No question. We are in um, from a regulatory compliance uh, tracing. Um, everything that uh, you guys are all about, um, the entire worldwide community is completely flat-footed and stuck and not even aware what's occurring. Um, and, and in my view, doesn't really understand what's currently happening um, and how they're going to uh, start to regulate this. And um, 
I think everyone that's listening to this realizes that all markets globally are, are being flooded through platforms like Alibaba with unregulated, counterfeit, um, non-traced, um, unknown origin devices, pharma, med surge, um, and it is rapidly becoming overwhelming at the borders around the world of how to manage this stuff. Counterfeit devices in the U.S. and throughout North America have become almost epidemic. And Alibaba is just one platform. And you're going to see thousands of marketplace platforms um, being created. They haven't really had much success. And in some cases, certain marketplaces of either restricted or not allowed um, devices or pharma. Amazon, being fully capable of doing it, hasn't really allowed anything but lab or uh, beauty. Um, surely hasn't got into devices or pharma. And we all know in this industry, uh, Amazon is deeply involved in looking at this um, to compete against the GPOs. And um, eBay, um, even though they're a strong marketplace of roughly $700 million a year, 97% of it being uh, pre-owned, 3% of it being new. Um, they, they've substantially restricted that growth for a lot of different reasons. But if you think about just eBay, a $700 million unregulated marketplace, that's astounding that there's no regulatory oversight. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about how that works. Right now, if I were to, you said the healthcare marketplace, I'm not very familiar with that, to be completely open with you on eBay. So what is involved there and what's the difference in that and what, well, you already mentioned Amazon doesn't have a lot of either device, pharmacies and so forth, but what is the uh, scope of healthcare marketplace on eBay versus like Alibaba? Can you speak a little bit to that? Sure. There's a whole range of marketplace kind of, you know, maybe I'm trying to think of the right way to say it is uh, success or uh, lack of success or lack of adoption or just lack of use. And if we just look at, um, let's use eBay as an example. eBay, early on, eBay was a marketplace of Pez dispensers and Beanie Babies, which were really called uh, practicals was that category. It evolved to, excuse me, collectibles. It evolved to practicals, practicals being golf clubs and washing machines. Um, there was a, an alliance at the time with Craigslist, which most everyone's aware of. Um, and I won't go into too much details uh, detail about that, but everyone knows that you know Craigslist was kind of an early garage online garage sale and continues mm-hmm. to be that to some extent. And eBay uh, started to look at different sectors in which they could be successful: tractors, yellow iron like caterpillars, and uh, uh, and uh, bulldozers and real estate and automotives and um, healthcare. And the list was somewhat endless because they figured if we can get trust in a category like collectibles, and then we can migrate to golf clubs and fashion, tennis shoes, we'll be able to do it in other sectors. And in some cases, they were very, very successful. In other cases, they failed completely. Um, And then in some cases, they just didn't allow it. Um, A lot of marketplaces, for example, don't allow firearms. Um, So in some cases, they just said, you know, we're not going to play. But very few people know that, and I'll use when you talk about a marketplace to give people some perspective of what a marketplace is and how it can grow. It's the very beginning of eBay. Since you brought up cars, eBay Motors was a picture of a car 
and some HTML code. People that um, were early eBay users will remember that you couldn't just type in your description into the template. You actually had to HTML code it. And if you coded it with the wrong code and you wanted it to be in black, but you didn't use the right code, it would be in pink. And you wanted it to be in sans serif, it might show up in some other way. Um, So, uh, and the picture might be vertical versus horizontal. It was just really (laughs) messy and didn't work. And so if you think about what we call the democratization of trust, which is how marketplaces get velocity. And eBay didn't have a lot of that, um, that trust. And so people really wouldn't buy a car from, if I'm here in Utah and somebody was looking at it in San Francisco, they wouldn't do that. So eBay started to put things, what were called trust enablers in place. And a trust enabler, you would know, and I'm just using your experience and thoughts about automotives, you would know a a trust enabler as Carfax, um, transportation, video inspection, money back guarantee, financing, all of that kind of infrastructure that kind of came in that created trust for someone to purchase a car from one location to another site unseen and get that delivered is what created um, uh, the eBay Motors marketplace. And people don't realize that eBay started with no car sales. And today they've sold over 5 million cars. And another early adopter of marketplace automotives was um, Autobytel run by a friend of mine named Mark Lorimer. And um, those two companies really created the entire online marketplace experience that we all enjoy today. Uh, It all started there. And so eBay, now to specifically answer your question, said, you know, we're going to play in in healthcare, um, but the biggest restrictor of healthcare on eBay is manufacturers and service providers don't want their products being associated with eBay. And so for the most part, they wouldn't use it because they didn't want their products up there. And frankly, a lot of manufacturers today will create barriers for resellers to put their products up there because they don't want to be associated with that practical, collectible fashion um, kind of uh, uh, branding or uh, uh, attachment. And so eBay somewhat is restricted both internally, but also from a marketplace standpoint. But as marketplaces get like ours and others get legitimacy within healthcare, you're going to see that happen. And um, when you think about how these work is eBay is mostly what we call, and you may know this phrase called spray and pray, spray with Windex and pray that it works. Um, and that is not a regulated, um, uh, kind of, um, kind of a regulated, uh, uh, process. Um, and we're going to see, if you think about how fast this is going to happen and how lack of regulatory oversight exists, I just think the industry isn't really ready for what's about to happen. I'm thinking of a few just scenarios myself. If Okay, if I could go online and buy a used medical device, I don't know for sure it works. I, I don't, I don't unless it comes with a DMR, like a, a recent inspection and so forth, things like that, which, uh, yeah, I could see a lot of holes in uh, whatever might currently pop up. So as an, a manufacturer, then I can kind of identify with them saying, hey, I don't know that I want 
maybe not so much new, but any of my older products, because that is eventually going to be traced back to me, whether it's through adverse events that, you know, do a, to a, a poorly refurbished item. Of course, then you start getting into right to rework, things like that. I'm curious. So what is the path forward then? So if I'm a manufacturer, knowing that this is coming at some point, what advice would you have for a uh, maybe even early stage company uh, to, to prepare for some of these things? Great question. So I, I think there's a something I would want to have people kind of consider before I answer the question, which is, you know, the, the common position of leadership in manufacturing, I'm mostly now speaking of devices. Obviously, we can't reuse pharma or, you know, we can't reuse gauze. Sure. But yeah. Mostly devices um, at this point in this uh, particular uh, kind of question uh, question and answer is that the manufacturer mostly be, you know, we're going to restrict the resell of these devices in some way by creating barriers to get service and support, to create uh, recertification fees, to get that device um, kind of back into our system so we can support it. There's been all kinds of, in my view, illegal, unjust, um, unethical uh, predatory barriers that healthcare manufacturers have um, created and put in place to, re- to res- restrict the resale. However, what they're missing is, is that if you think about it from a practical standpoint, most service of medical devices is done by third parties, not by the manufacturers. And hospitals now, um, as part of their budgetary process, are actually putting in the resale of their hospital beds, their CTs, their PET scans, their, these things are going back into rural North American markets. Um, uh, They're getting money for them. They're being redeployed into the secondary market. Um, There's very few, just using a category, ultrasounds that aren't used and then resold and being used again. And if it probably, if we didn't have secondary market service and the resell of devices currently in the U.S., as much as it's the manufacturers try to restrict it, is we probably wouldn't be able to afford healthcare. If you think about it, there'd be such a monopoly on the price of devices by the manufacturers and the monopolization of service. They would basically be able to charge whatever they wanted. Um, the only restriction would be the other manufacturers that um, would, you know, may, may keep their pricing and service lower and better, but we're going to have products being resold into the U.S. and around the world. It's just going to keep happening. And so I think we just have to kind of recognize that this is this is here. It's going to stay. It's not going away. When you have, a, in my world, an aesthetic device that really, on average, is new, 100,000, physicians, clinicians cannot buy those and just take $100,000 losses if it doesn't work for the clinic. Um, for some way, whether it's they bought the wrong device, not the right patient mix, uh, lost their technician, went in a different direction, their practice got bought, whatever it might be, those devices need to get redeployed. Um, otherwise, the, the impact to the practice would be substantial. So now to answer your question is, um, we're, we're going to see um, the reprocessing of devices being done through facilities such as ours, which make sure that these devices go back into the space, meeting manufacturer specifications that are safety inspected, that are um, uh, biomedically tested, 
um, on, uh, on testing equipment that's been certified in date, um, where the process is videotaped and photographed um, and documented, where the end user now of that second market device has confidence that that device is currently meeting manufacturer specifications, no different than if a third-party service provider came in and serviced something on a hospital or a clinic's platform as they do today to make sure that they're treating patients safely and effectively. So these trust enabler platforms, going back to what I was explaining about eBay Motors, you're going to see reprocessing centers that sit in between the resell of devices that are charging for that service, but aren't necessarily taking title um, to make sure that that device is being delivered and it meets manufacturer specifications. Okay, that makes sense. So you still have full traceability all the way back to the beginning, I assume. And I need to correct what I said earlier about DMR. I think I meant DHR, Mm -hmm. updating that and having that full traceability record. So really, it almost sounds like when you're developing a device, if I were to translate this a little bit, tell me where I'm missing the mark. If I'm, if I'm developing a device in today's world, I need to be thinking about the full life cycle, not just, okay, it's in the market and I'm waiting to hear um, maybe, you know, whatever feedback I get from the, from the market. I need to be thinking about the potential of resale um, and reprocessing, refurbishing all the way through, essentially. I mean, it's a little bit more than maybe it used to be. Or I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I'm missing. That. No. Any any thoughts? How can you? No. I think again, if you you just kind of made a point is that I am trying to you know as I do interviews and talk to people and build up our platform is getting kind of the the industry to think about um, if you're a manufacturer even of a consumable you know that have an expiration date if those consumables aren't being used they're probably going to be used even though they're expired and um, in some secondary market, Um, or they may just be used in a primary market with the expiration date known because of the cost control. And now, if you think about it, we know we're going to face recessionary pressure, whether it's one month or one year or 10 years, nobody really knows, but we know that industries and move in cycles And we know that budgets move in cycles and we know economies move in cycles. When when the economy starts to get rattled, capital spend or any spend, um, discretionary spend is reduced. And that forces uh, more service, um, the resale of devices to to recover capital, to buy pre-owned at a discount to, to add that technology or replace that technology or to back it up. So you're going to see actually another acceleration of this market um, and also marketplaces trying to find ways to reduce costs to clinicians and administrators because of now an add-on to the pandemic, which is now recessionary pressure. So manufacturers need to be thinking about the entire life cycle, not the first user, which they typically are focused on from a regulatory standpoint. They're now going to be thinking about this product actually is going to be in the in the channel for probably 15 to 25 years. You know, there are energy-based devices and aesthetics that are 20 years old that are still being used today and being bought and sold globally. And manufacturers um, kind of ignore it, like, oh, we're not going to service it anymore. But there is a very healthy and robust secondary market parts business 
um, OEM equivalent manufacturing of those parts, ongoing training and education, um, certification of these 20-year-old technologies. And I think manufacturers need to change their position and think about the profitability of maintaining and supporting that through the channel and the life of the product in the channel. That's a great point. It, it kind of given me flashbacks to a previous life. I worked as a manufacturing engineer, worked on neurosurgical equipment for uh, cranial stabilization as well as uh, stereotactic surgery. And some of those were legacy devices that were 20 plus years old. And the thought occurred to me working there, you know, when we get things that had been yeah, they were basically done. We were done reprocessing them for whatever reason. We retire a product, whether it's 100,000 or plus or whatever. I would think about these other countries even or other places that don't have access to this high equipment. And this maybe goes into a different direction. So if this is totally off topic, please you know pull me back. My wife and I had the opportunity in 2016 to volunteer in Africa. And my wife is a critical care nurse. So we went to Malawi, which I think is like the third poorest country in the world. And she volunteered at a hospital that she, according to her, she was using equipment that she had only seen in her historical textbooks, you know, the, stuff from the eighties. And uh, they don't have access to a lot of those, you know, a lot of the things that we might even just throw away. They were, everything was expired. You mentioned the gauze and, and so forth, secondary markets. And if this is off topic, uh, that's fine. But I'm curious, is this also building into something that could be helping these additional industries where, you know, if, if we think a little bit more about the used market, I, for lack of a better term, is there somebody thinking about that? And how should we be thinking or treating those things from a global standpoint? Well, I think you bring up really a, an interesting kind of topic in talking about devices into secondary and, uh, you know, other downstream, even beyond the, the traditional secondary markets, kind of the really rural and impoverished marketplaces and they currently exist around the world where you're going to see devices. Uh, you know, when, when there was that large um, explosion in, uh, in Lebanon, you know, a little over a year and a half ago, I think now, there was a yeah. lot of movement of technology pre-owned going into the market to take care of uh, injured patients. I think you're going to see the same thing throughout Eastern Europe and Ukraine, where uh, is that uh, country rebuilds and, and people need to uh, to be, uh, especially in energy-based devices, in what we do, you're going to see a large migration of this technology, not new, um, but pre-owned going in there to, to treat patients and uh, and casualty victims um, or uh, injury victims. And uh, so so these devices um, are, are going to continue to go into primary markets um, and into, uh, into these secondary markets. And I, I don't believe that the industry... Uh, realizes how large this this industry is, um, and what's what's happening. And, and if you think about from this perspective, you can't find a capital market that doesn't embrace the secondary market. Um, and I'll explain. Just let's use Viking boats. If it wasn't for pre-owned Viking boats, they probably wouldn't sell a lot of new Viking boats. Um, and. Uh, because, you know, the, the cost of a big, expensive boat is prohibitive to many people. They want to get on that path to, to having that experience of purchasing something, if that's what they choose to have. And they start out with something that might be 10 or 20 years old uh, or even older than that. Let's look at Tesla, for example. If it wasn't for the ability to resell Teslas, no new Teslas would get sold. It just wouldn't happen. And so what about jets or 
washing machines or, <laughs> I mean, how about computer equipment or cell phones? Lots of people have secondary market cell phones. Um, Apple buys them back. It's, it's pretty remarkable that we see this in every aspect of our life, but it's not really recognized um, it, in the healthcare devices and pharma and med surge. And I think that's what you're asking. It's massive. And with the compression of the supply chain and the sale of products and services, the, a lot of the friction and inefficiency is going to go away and this is going to explode. There needs to be specific regulation, it sounds like, maybe to curb the bad players in the market, for example. Do you have any specific thoughts on on what that regulation would look like or, you know, voice of the industry, what you see being a practical application of regulation in this context? I think we, and this is probably surprising that I would say this to a lot of people, but I think we need more regulation and we need it fast. And we need it very, very quickly, redundant there quickly and very, very fast. But, <laughs> you know, and I don't think it's limited to just the, the bad actors. Um, I think it's keeping an honest industry honest. Um, I, I think oversight when it comes to, you know, patient experience and safety and care is paramount. I, I just don't think there is any um, at the level that it needs to be. Um, I mentioned earlier that, you know, the resale of devices through Alibaba counterfeits, for example, um, we have to be so, so careful um, that we're treating human beings. And um, the, the, in, in many cases, we don't even know what we're treating them with if they're not properly serviced, tested um, and uh, transported and installed and safety inspected on site and recalibrated um, the, the injury to patients is going to be astronomic and the cost and litigation is going to be unprecedented. So we need regulation now more than ever um, to make sure that the industry continues to stay um, uh, safe for those patients that are being treated with these devices. Yeah. And I can think of a very specific example even of that. You know, I mean, when I was working with stainless 303 stainless steel. It reacts a little bit differently if you passivate it nitric facet, passivated or, or citric passivated. So you get a little bit of difference there. I mean, it's slight, but certainly you need to check those biocompatibilities if you just order something from Alibaba. I can see where you come from exactly. This is really good. This is kind of eye-opening to me a little bit. I've never really kind of thought about those secondary or downstream markets from this standpoint. Any other thought? I know we didn't get to talk a lot about um, the aesthetics, which is, you know, I know you are a leader in the field of aesthetics. Did you have some things you'd like to mention about that? Uh, uh, just a little education for the industry or any thoughts? Well, yeah, I think there's some things that, are, that aren't really relevant to, to share with the, you know, aesthetics is, is probably a small subset of your, your audience. And, and sure. but, but I think that what we're doing here is really important for your listeners and watchers to understand because they're going to, to be thinking about it soon. I happened to be in uh, uh, Scotland um, this past month at an investment banking uh, summit, and I was speaking to a gentleman that's one of the largest manufacturers within Vision, and he was telling me that, you know, they had brought their kind of leadership from around the world into the Netherlands for a meeting about just a sense that they they think something's changing in the way they're distributing products, but they really couldn't put their finger on it. And 
they actually got together and actually left with no solutions. They just know something's happening, but they really couldn't put their finger on it. And so I kind of explained to them Interesting. what we're doing and what we're thinking. Um, and I think this, this is, uh, um, this is becoming, um, it's going to become kind of a trend and not necessarily exactly what we're doing, but people will start to, to appreciate it. And that is that when we decided to, to build a healthcare marketplace, which is our ultimate objective. And for those of you who don't know, we currently have, for example, 60,000 McKesson SKUs. We're very close to having all McKesson SKUs up on the platform in the next few weeks and uh, being a reseller for McKesson, a pharma and med surge and uh, non-prescribed items. Um, and so we're really trying to, to find ways to aggregate uh, viewership, buyers, administrators, uh, clinicians, and uh, give them you know, good, better, best pricing, lowest cost, peer-to-peer reviews, the things I mentioned earlier. But we, we knew that we couldn't do this in all markets. I mean, you could quickly, you and I, identify 40 to 50 capital markets imaging, for example, and then subsets of imaging from CT, MRI, uh, PET, ultrasound, um, RAD. You could go to IV pumps as a category. You could go to anesthesia and monitoring as a category, diagnostics, whether you go hematology or, or chemistry. I mean, the, the capital market um, segments are gigantic. The subsets within those are, are gigantic. We decided to focus on aesthetics because of three primary factors in building a marketplace. We, we wanted to enter in, in a market that we, we knew was growing year over year, and aesthetics is in spite of economic pushback and uh, recessionary pressure. Um, we, we wanted something that was cash-based because marketplaces like cash. And, um, and, and for example, if a hospital buys IV pumps, they buy them with POs, not with cash. And so marketplaces, we, want, we wanted to kind of test our thesis with a cash-based um, sector, not, a, not a, uh, a PO-based. And the other thing is aesthetics is very emotional and marketplace adoption likes emotion. And I'll give an example. Buying an IV pump is generally not emotional, but buying a, um, a hair removal device um, with a lot of different manufacturers, there's a lot of complexity and differentiation. It's highly emotional having that, you know, best technology in the, in the practice um, from a branding and patient um, awareness standpoint. So we, we entered there and we then set out to say, OK, we're going to have to create trust enablers similar to eBay if we're going to get people to make that transition and trust enablers, we've identified in our market eight and I'll cover a couple of them. One of them was a processing center. So we currently have more biomedical engineers in our facility uh, than most manufacturers processing pre-owned devices. Um, there's over a thousand pre-owned devices that we own in our facility um, that range anywhere from 5,000 to over a hundred thousand. Uh, we have over 10,000 hand pieces, parts and peripherals. And we used this to kind of be able to deliver great customer experiences. And actually this month, we're going to start allowing our first resellers on the platform and they'll have to use our processing center, our trust enabler to make sure that we're delivering that experience um, that the customer, the clinician administrator expects. We had to build uh, an Uber and Angie's platform for techs and trainers because you can't just keep flying techs and trainers you needed some form of regionalization of the deployment of that technology um, uh, installation and then training and, um, and to bring that cost down. So we currently have 750 um, domestic technicians and trainers in an Angie Uber's list like uh, Angie's list Uber platform where we can deploy technicians or trainers on a regional basis at a lot less cost 
um, with certification, um, with reviews. We had to build an IMS for inventory um, because we clearly couldn't own all the inventory. A lot of people didn't want to list their inventory on the platform. And initially, we didn't allow it. So we had to find where all that inventory was. It was sitting on the sidelines. So um, we started to build these things that ultimately would bring adoption and velocity to the platform. And then experience when they made that purchase would be similar or better than what they got from an original manufacturer. So we've been in the process of building those things. And I think that's what you're going to see in subsectors um, throughout uh, medical devices and pharma are similar kind of platforms that we've created that have those trust enablers um, that allow uh, the, as I said in the very beginning, the reduction of 40 to 50% of the cost and really transferring that to the buyer. The trust enablers, that was the question I was going to have, but you answered it. And that is that certification of the reprocessing, the uh, that Angie's List Uber type certified person who does those things. That's very interesting. That um, I can definitely see that being a disruptor. So that's very cool. Well, it's been it's been great being on, and hopefully, some people will get some some at least get them thinking about uh, yeah. things a little bit. I, I'm hopeful. Yeah, this is good. I really appreciate it. We'll put a link in the show notes so that people can find you and uh, what you're doing. See a little bit more about how you guys are approaching this problem. Um, very much appreciate the work you're doing. Any last thoughts for our listeners? No, I, I think that that I guess I, ha- I have one, which is, and I said this I think a couple of times is. If, if you just stop and step back and think about how everything in our lives is purchased and how everything in this industry is still sold, that will, will trigger some of the, the, uh, the thinking that maybe something significant is going to happen. And if you want to maintain or grow your position in the market, there's never been a better time than to do it right now. And I see older leaders still doubling, tripling down on trade shows and events and field sales reps. And it's just not going to work. All right. Well, definitely a lot of food for thought. Thank you so much for being on the show, Scott. Uh, those of you who've been listening, you've been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. And we will see you next time. Thank you so much for listening today. Just a few of the points I took away from the conversation were there are already facilities working towards reprocessing these devices to ensure devices meet manufacturer specifications. Scott talked a little bit about how the selling of these devices is changing and how buyers themselves, their behavior is changing. It's starting to come over and cross over into the healthcare and the medical device world as well. I encourage you to go check out what Scott is up to at Powered by MRP to learn more. If you enjoyed this episode, reach out to Scott on LinkedIn, tell him what you thought and uh, let him know. Also, I'd personally love to hear from you via email, etienne.nichols at greenlight.guru or look me up on LinkedIn. You can learn all about what we're doing if you head over to www.greenlight.guru. We're the only med tech lifecycle excellence platform. And on top of that, we've built both a community and an academy where you can go to join the conversation or learn more about the things we discuss on this podcast. You can find both of those at community.greenlight.guru or academy.greenlight.guru. Finally, if you enjoyed this show, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. It helps people find us. It also lets us know how we're doing. We love hearing that feedback. Thanks again. 
Appreciate you listening. You're the best. Improving the quality of life. I know we say it a lot here at Greenlight Grew, and I'll bet it's something you probably said at your company too. We help babies breathe at night. We give you another day to be a dad. We give you back your eyesight. Those are some of the things the medical device industry and our customers are able to say because that's what they're doing. They're improving the quality of life for these individuals. Greenlight Guru is the only quality management software designed exclusively for the medical device industry. We built our software around standards like ISO 13485 and risk-based principles to help you bring safer devices to market three times faster. We're building the tools that will make it easier for you to build yours. If you're ready to find out how to improve the quality of life, contact greenlight.guru today.